Thanks for tuning in to the Follow Church weekly message. Our hope and prayer is that you will find this message uplifting and challenging as we seek to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. Now when I was young, I sound like an old man, don't I? When I was young, the horse and cart used to come and deliver the milk. I'm not that old, but as I say that, I realise some of you are, so I'm sorry about that. But when I was young, I think generally speaking, I'm in a lot of trouble now. <laughs> generally speaking, there was more respect for people as a whole and certainly for those in authority. As a child, if a teacher or a pastor or a parent or a policeman asked me to do something, my default position was to show respect. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. I will do it. There was a healthy level of respect. But I don't know if you've noticed these days, things seem to have changed a little bit. With young people today, if a person in authority asks them to do something, they're more likely to look at them and think, well, what the heck would you know? How can you tell me what to do with all of your years of experience and wisdom? How could you possibly tell me, a young person, what to do? Because I know better, right? Has anyone noticed that? In our world, respect sort of has gone out the window a little bit. I don't know when this all changed, but I think our culture changes are often reflected in the music world. If you're a little bit older, you might remember back to a band called The Beatles, a song called Revolution. You say you want a revolution. <laughs> well, you know, we all want to change the world, right? But if you talk about destruction, don't you know you can count me out? You say you'll change the Constitution. Well, you know we all want to change your head. You tell me it's the institution. Well, you better free your mind instead. If you don't remember that one, you might remember Pink Floyd. Another brick in the wall. We don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. Teachers, leave them kids alone. And nearly every person in this place is a teacher, so it's relevant for you. <laughs> all in all, you're just another brick in the wall. Don't forget that, Marco. It's another brick in the wall. I'm talking to the older people today, aren't I? What about people my age, the young ones? You might remember, what are you laughing so loud about for, Matt? That's very rude. Disrespect, see? <laughs> Respect and authority out the window, right? You might remember a band called The Living End. They had a song called Prisoner of Society. Well, we don't need no one to tell us what to do. Oh, yes, we're on our own, and there's nothing you can do. And we don't need no one like you to tell us what to do, because I'm a brat, and I know everything. And I talk back because I'm not listening to anything you say. Our culture is often reflected in the music industry. I googled this week for a current song for the younger crowd here this morning, but apparently they don't write any good music anymore. <laughs> now I'm sounding really old, aren't I? Sound like my dad. But over my lifetime, I've seen this attitude towards authority shift almost completely. With social media now, anyone can have a voice to criticise and even slander and often do cowardly behind a computer screen and a keyboard. One of the groups of the people most often targeted in our society are politicians. I think Donald Trump has taken that to a whole new level. But even here in Australia, politicians are the target of constant ridicule, criticism, abuse and even slander on a daily basis. In fairness, Australian politics have given us a lot of ammunition in recent years, where it seems we lack politicians who have conviction other than standing against what the other side stands for. And if they have conviction, they seem to lack compassion for people. 
And so it's a bit of a mess and people don't hold back in their critique and abuse of these politicians and prime ministers, of which we have a new one each month or at the most year here in Australia. But the question this morning really is this. As Christian people, should our attitude towards those in authority actually be different? Today we're continuing our Roman series, as Ray said a moment ago, we commenced this last June, this is part 23, we're going to finish Romans off by the end of January. But if you've been here for the series, you'll probably know that the first 11 chapters of Romans are deeply theological, it's setting a basis for our faith, it covers pretty much everything in the gospel, it's probably the most stunning presentation of the good news in all of scripture. But from chapter 12 onwards, it goes from being deeply uh, deeply theological to immensely practical. And it really deals with some of these practical issues in our lives. And in today's passage from Romans 13, it helps us to understand how we should live towards those in positions of authority and with the state of politics in this country in 2019, that is very practical for us. We should remember back to the start of this practical section of Romans in chapter 12, as it turned the page from the theological to the deeply, immensely practical, it started by saying that we should no longer conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And I think it's good to remember back to that because I think the principle sets in that verse actually sets the scene for how we should relate to our government. Just because so many other people abuse, slander and criticise doesn't mean that we should because we are called to be different, to be countercultural, to have our minds transformed and renewed by God and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. At the end of this chapter, chapter 13, it talks about love and it instructs us to love our neighbour, showing that love does no harm to a neighbour and that love is the fulfilment of God's law. In fact, it says the only debt that remains outstanding all of our lives is this outstanding and ongoing debt to love one another. It never ceases, we never clear it. We're called for the rest of our lives to pursue loving God and loving others. And we may not always agree with politicians, but we need to remember that they are our neighbour. And so let's keep that in mind as we dig into this passage today. The title of my message is The World of Politics, Donald Trump and Our Response. And the question is, how should we live towards those in authority in our lives and in our country, even our politicians? Well, I think Paul makes some things pretty crystal clear in the first six verses. Let's pick it up at verse 1. First two words says, let everyone. Let's say that word everyone together. You ready? One, two, three. Okay, one more time. One, two, three. Everyone. Let everyone. Who is included in everyone? Everyone. That means everyone in this room, everyone in this world. Let everyone be subject to, under the authority of, the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Let me say that sentence again. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. And so we subject ourselves to the governing authorities as a way of recognising that God himself has put our government in place. Verse 2. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Yes. Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Why are they in authority? 
God's put them in authority for our good, for your good, for my good. There are lawmakers and legislators and politicians who are in place to govern and to decide things for our good. And so if you drive into our street in Pakenham, our back street, you cannot drive at 100 k's an hour because it's a side street. And I don't want you driving any faster than 40 k's in my street because it's not safe. And so at some stage, someone in authority sat down, probably with a group of people, to determine what the speed limit would be in local streets, and they decided on 40 kilometres, and I think, and I hope you think, that that's a good thing because it's to keep us safe. So continuing on in verse 4, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear, bear the sword for no reason. And so if you come to my street this afternoon and you drive 100 kilometres in my street where my kids are playing, I will run out the front door with a sword. <laughs> that won't really happen, but only because I don't have a sword. If I did, I probably would. But if you do get caught driving 100 kilometres in my street, the, the authorities, they won't bear the sword, but they will apply the law. And you will receive a large fine and lose your license and probably get yourself a lovely article with your face on it in the local paper. So be afraid because you have done the wrong thing. Verse 4, they are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. In other words, you know that it's the right thing to do. Tim Keller says, We submit, therefore, to the laws of our nation and respect those who govern us because it is right, wise, and fair. Verse 6, this is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. So let's summarise these first six verses. What do we know about those in authority? First of all, that we should submit, subject ourselves to them. Why? Because it's God who's put them in place. Why has he put them in place? For our good. And if we do the right thing according to the law, we have nothing to worry about. But if we rebel against the authority or the law of the land, then we should be afraid. Why? Because they are in place to punish the wrongdoer. But not only that, as Christians, we should also pay our taxes and show respect and honour to those in authority because according to Scripture, it is the right thing to do. Now, all that sounds okay and logical and so I think, yeah, that sounds pretty good. But if you're anything like me, as you read through this passage, there's a lot of questions that go through my mind. The first one is this, what about Hitler? What about Pol Pot? What about Stalin? What do we do when there's a leader in place who is clearly evil or doing things that go against our faith and our conscience? Is it ever okay to disobey a leader like that? Now, I think logically we know the answer to that. But what does Scripture have to say for us? Because I think the danger of this passage in isolation is that it can be misquoted and misused so that people support wicked leaders. I think Nazi Germany is probably... The most, example, the most pressing example of this with Hitler. In fact, the Nazi government managed to convince many in the German church to go along with them, even to the point of turning in their Jewish neighbours to the Gestapo so they could be disposed of in concentration camps and all because of their understanding of passages like Romans 13. They convinced those under their rule that their government had been established by God and they therefore were simply to conform and be good citizens. Now, clearly, that can be very dangerous. 
and it can at times be completely wrong. I think there's precedents set in other parts of Scripture that show this to be the case. And so the question now becomes, is it ever okay to disobey those in authority? And so to answer that question, we're going to look at three things this morning. And the first one, if you're a note taker, is this, that God is our ultimate authority. God is our ultimate authority. Paul tells us in this passage that we should subject ourselves to those in authority, but he also makes it clear that there is someone higher than the governing authorities that rule our country and world. That person is God. We see this from the passage that, first of all, our governing authorities are only there because God has put them there. Verse 1, there is no authority except that which God has established. Secondly, this passage tells us why they're in place in the first place. In verse 4 and also in verse 6, it says that they are the Lord's servants. And so they're put in place by God as the Lord's servants. Leon Morris in his commentary says this gives the ruler a special dignity, but at the same time stresses that their position is a subordinate one. In other words, you've got us, citizens, and then you've got the governing authorities that God has put in place that we're to submit to, but over the top of that, you have God as the ultimate authority who put them there in the first place. And so it reminds us that God is our ultimate authority. Scripture tells us one day every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not that Scott Morrison is Lord, not that Donald Trump is Lord, not that Daniel Andrews is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. We are reminded over and over again that God is the ultimate authority in our lives. And so we live within this dualistic reality where we're told to submit ourselves to the governing authorities, but at the same time to submit ourselves to God in the right order, remembering that God is our number one priority and also in our lives our number one authority. In the early church, we see the first disciples and apostles in an interesting situation. We've got to remember that these people, they were eyewitnesses to Jesus. They saw his life. They saw him die on a cross. And then with their own eyes, they witnessed him after he rose again from the dead. They saw it with their own eyes. So they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the saviour of the world. And so they wanted to spend the rest of their lives telling as many people as possible the good news of Jesus. This was their obsession. It was their mission. It was a complete purpose of their lives. In fact, most of them ended up dying for their faith because they were so convinced of who Jesus was. They wanted to tell everyone that in a relationship with Christ, we find forgiveness, joy, peace, and hope for the future. He is the answer to all of life's questions. And every person who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will be saved. That is great news. It's the greatest news of all time. And it's just like the early disciples and apostles, we should be just as passionate to share the good news of Jesus with everyone we encounter. And it seems like I'm the only one excited about that this morning. Is there anyone else here who this new year is believing for relatives and friends and people in your workplace and in our community who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus this Lord this year as Lord. This should be the prayer and the desire and the passion and the obsession of our lives and our hearts and everything we do. We want to see people come to know Jesus because he's the answer. He's the only hope for humanity. This is the greatest news of all time. 
However, for these early apostles and disciples, the governing authorities in Rome, where this letter was received, as well as other parts in the ancient world, commanded that they stay silent about Jesus. Zip it. Don't even talk about Jesus. We don't want to hear any more about this guy. Sounds a little bit like our culture today, doesn't it? There's a lot of toing and froing, going backwards and forwards around freedom of speech and freedom of religion. And at the moment, you know, what you can say and where you can say it is all kind of up in the air. And there's a whole lot of debate around those things. And I think as we consider all of that, what's happening in our culture, I think these early apostles are a great example for us. No matter what, they just couldn't stop talking about Jesus. He changed their hearts. He changed their lives. He'd done miraculous things. They knew he was the only hope they had. And so they couldn't stop talking about Jesus. Even when they were arrested for their faith and thrown in prison, they kept talking about him. And then they were released again. And as soon as they left the prison, they started telling everyone about Jesus once again. They were willing to suffer the consequences of their faith. Read in Acts chapter 5, after getting out of prison, they're dragged again before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest, who said to them, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Now you can almost picture Peter and the apostles and you almost expect them to shrink back and say, we're sorry, all right, we'll shut up. We don't want to go back to prison again. Please don't send us back. But that's not the way they respond. Filled with boldness and wisdom, submitting themselves to a higher authority, they replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The apostles understood that God is their ultimate authority, and so should we. God's our ultimate authority. Secondly, for the note-takers, heaven is our ultimate citizenship. Philippians 3, verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most people in this room are citizens of Australia. That gives us certain privileges and responsibilities, and we should love and respect our country. We are very blessed people to live in a country such as the one like this. However, Scripture also describes us as aliens and strangers in this world. So we're citizens of Australia, but we are aliens and strangers in this world. And so we know that by putting our faith in Jesus, we actually become citizens of heaven. Therefore, we are to live by the law of the land in Australia... However, first and foremost, we are to live by heaven's values because that's where our ultimate citizenship lies. I've just finished reading a fascinating book. It's called Choosing Donald Trump. God, Anger, Hope and Why Christian Conservatives Supported Him. It's a fascinating book. It tells us a lot about Donald Trump's upbringing and what happened in his life to form him to be the kind of person he is. And it's quite interesting, but it also gives us a lot of background into the election when he was swept up into the position of US president. And the author is a guy called Stephen Mansfield. He's a political writer. He's written about a lot of different presidents. And he gives us a good background about this election, and he tries to explain why so many evangelicals supported him, despite Donald Trump's dubious history and immaturity on social media, his obvious character flaws. Many Christian conservatives backed him to become the president. And Stephen Mansfield is exploring the question of why that was. And he explains that leading up to the election, many evangelical Christians in the US were agitated and concerned about where the country was heading. They felt that Barack Obama, uh, in his eight years as president, had eroded Christian 
eroded Christian ideals with these policies on things such as religious freedom, abortion, and same-sex marriage. And they were at the point of being angry because they felt that they lost the values that they held dearly for their country. And so when Donald Trump, as a presidential uh, kind of candidate, started to show that he was angry about those things as well, and also promised that he would restore some of those values and overturn some of those policies, they were happy to back him despite his pitfalls. In other words, they backed him because it suited their agenda. They felt that he was going to do something that no one else was doing. And so they backed him to be the president. In the last two chapters of this book, they are very helpful, and they're titled The Art of Prophetic Distance. And the author talks about some of these evangelical pastors who've been brought into Donald Trump's inner circle. He is what he calls an evangelical council, which is a group of Christian ministers who are there to advise him. And he surrounded himself with these men and women. And the opinion of the author is that they are not doing that as effectively as they could or should. They are encouraging him, absolutely, to make the changes that suit their agenda, and some of those are good, but they're not challenging him in his character or his behavior. He makes the point that they should be keeping a prophetic distance from the president. Prophetic distance so that you can objectively and prayerfully challenge, confront, and speak into situations representing God's heart when needed. It's a great privilege to come into that circle with a president, but it comes with great responsibility to represent God as a minister. Mansfield says this is what is required of ministers who step into the lives of presidents. They're not merely there to affirm. They are not there simply to sanction. They are there to confront and speak truth that brings change. They are there to maintain prophetic prophetic distance and to be guardians of a moral vision for life and government. I think this is really important, but not just for ministers that surround a president, but also for us with our government. It's important that we keep a prophetic distance. I don't know if you've noticed this, but with the rise of social media, it seems to have increased the divide between right and left. Right and left. The divide seems to have increased uh, with social media, and everyone can have their say now. And I think the problem is this, that even many Christian people will blindly support a candidate or a politician no matter what they do or say simply because they're on the right or they're on the left. There's no prophetic distance. As citizens of heaven, our job is not to align ourselves exclusively right or left, but to keep a prophetic distance being a guardian of a moral vision for life and government. And so when the left do good things, make good policies, we encourage and support that. When the right do good things and make good policies, we encourage and support that. But at times, when we're keeping a prophetic distance, we also challenge and speak into those issues representing God's heart, not as citizens of Australia, but primarily as citizens of heaven. That's why I think things like civil disobedience and peaceful protesting and lobbying of politicians through petitions and letters and, of course, voting are ways that we can respect governing authorities while also being a prophetic voice for change. In a democracy, we have great opportunities to do those things, and I would encourage you to, and as you do, remember that heaven is our ultimate citizenship. Heaven is our ultimate citizenship. God is our ultimate authority. And thirdly and finally, God's word is our ultimate law. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, bone and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture 
is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is not just another ordinary book. This is God-breathed. It's his very word spoken to us. It's useful. It's alive. And it's the ultimate law for us to live our lives by. However, there will be times where the government that God has put in place will command us to do things that clearly contradict God's word. I think of someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer during World War II, a German theologian, pastor and writer who outspokenly stood up against Hitler and his government for what they were doing to the Jews in terms of injustice and evil acts. He was a brilliant theologian, very articulate, and his works are now timeless classics, but Bonhoeffer's bravery and outspoken nature led to tragic consequences. First of all, all of his books were put on the ban list. He then lost his license to teach at university. He was thrown into a prison where he continued to preach the good news of Jesus. And then finally and tragically, on April 9th, 1945, he was hung for his faith and for his Nazi resistance. He refused to submit to the laws of an evil dictator because God's word was his ultimate law. In the Bible, we see similar sort of situations with people like Daniel, who continued to pray to God even when he was commanded not to. People like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would not bow down to an idol of Nebuchadnezzar and were thrown into a fiery furnace. The midwives in the book of Exodus, who refused to kill every Hebrew boy when they were commanded to do so by Pharaoh. These people are examples of people who submitted themselves to God's law above the law of the land, and they were commended for doing so. If there was ever a time where our government decreed that you are never ever to talk about Jesus ever again, that's a command that we would have to disobey. We would have to break that law because our mission from God in his word is to go and make disciples of all nations. If that happens, we have a higher law than the law of the land, and it's the word of God. And for others, maybe in the medical profession, for example, you may be commanded at certain times to conduct certain procedures, for example, abortion. But we as Christians know from God's word that all life is precious and that we are to be people who stand up and give voice to the most vulnerable, including the unborn, and so we can't submit to that because we have a greater law. In those situations and many others I'm sure you can think of this morning, there is an ultimate authority and an ultimate law that we submit to, and it's God and his word. You know, I think a lot of Christians these days are afraid to obey God's word because they're worried about what people will think. Let me tell you a little life hack this morning. What people think changes all the time. In five years, what they're thinking now is going to be different. In five minutes, it'll be different. And so if you are following, your life is based on what people think. You're going to be like a roller coaster. Roller coasters are good if you can have a rest. But if you're doing that all the time, going up and down, it just makes you feel sick. If we're just swept along with the tides of our culture, we'll change our mind all the time. You know, it's like going in a stream. The weight of our culture is pushing us downstream, but we're like salmons. We're called to swim against it. We're countercultural. God's word's never going to be popular. Let's stop waiting for it to be popular, and let's start obeying it now. It's so important, isn't it? People's opinions will change. God's word is eternal. 
We can stand on it. We can bank on it. We can trust in it because it's God's word spoken and given to us. It's a wonderful thing. Wonderful thing. Paul finishes chapter 13 by challenging us. He says, The hour has already come for you to wake up out of your slumber because our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Church, Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but what we do know is it's closer than this time yesterday. Wake up out of your slumber. Now is the time to clothe ourselves with Jesus, to submit ourselves to God's word as our ultimate law. I think what John Stott says on this issue is very helpful. He says, the principle is clear. We are to submit right up to the point where obedience to the state would entail disobedience to God. But if the state commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands, then our plain Christian duty is to resist, not to submit, to disobey the state in order to obey God. It's beautifully put. I want to encourage you this morning as Christian men and women, to engage with those in authority, to show respect, honour, and even love to those who God has placed in the governing authorities, even when you disagree. I want to encourage you to think deeply about important issues, to research what politicians stand for, to pray for those in government and leadership, and to vote accordingly where appropriate. I also want to remind you to do it all in a way that represents Christ well. Finally, always remember that God is our ultimate authority. Heaven is our ultimate citizenship, and God's word is our ultimate law. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord God, we uh, know that we live in a world that's changing all the time. We know people's opinions and thoughts and ideals and morals are up and down and all around and changing pretty much every single day. Lord, we are so grateful that you've given us your word because it never changes. You're the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can stand on your word with great confidence that what worked for Paul in his day still works for us in our day because you're an eternal God. Your word is alive and active. It convicts the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. It changes us from the inside out through the work of your Holy Spirit. And we are so grateful. Lord, this year, our prayer is that you continue to change us. We don't want to be like we are right now at the end of this year. We want to be closer to you. We want to go deeper in our faith. We want to be bolder and more courageous for you. We want to be people that represent your heart and your character. Lord, I pray for the politicians in our local area, in our state, in our nation, in our world. Lord, we know that they have a difficult job, and sometimes we feel like we know all the answers, but we don't see a lot of the stuff they see. We don't know a lot of the stuff that goes on behind the scenes. And so I pray, Lord, that we'd be patient and kind and loving, and we'd hold them up in prayer. But I also pray, Lord, that we'd be bold enough to challenge them when need be that we would stand for what is right and just and true based on what your word teaches us. Lord, as we do that, I pray that we'd be a prophetic voice into our political sphere, into our world, into the lives of people we know, a voice of change, a voice that would help us all become more like you. And so, Lord, we ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit afresh, help us in this mission, and we pray it in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Awesome. Thanks for listening to our message this week. If it stirred your heart and you would like to talk to someone more about it or pray with someone, please get in touch with us at info at follow.church and one of our pastoral team will get back to you as soon as possible. If you'd like more information about Follow and our various ministries, including weekly service times and location, please check out our website, www.follow.church.
Thanks again for joining us. God bless.